the book and we have moved into our new digs into heaven. It's pretty amazing. So let's stand and let's read the first eight verses here this morning. John writes what he saw. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people God himself will be with them and be their God. I mean, that's amazing. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Comma. Think about that. And I will be his God. That is amazing. And he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And Father, this morning, may your word find good soil within each one of our hearts. Lord, that you would bring your word alive and that you would speak to us. And Lord, it would encourage us and we'd be so excited, Lord, as we discover where we're moving towards. So Lord, just bless our time in your word this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. The, the word of God is not only a hospital that will bring healing, a school where we can learn a gymnasium that promotes health, endurance that we could run to win, but it's also a travel agency. And as we work our way towards the end of this book, chapters 21 and 22 become a massive travel brochure for all of those who have turned to Jesus and allowed him to be the Lord of their life. These final two chapters with very, really limited information will declare our new address for all of eternity. And why, I ask? Verse 11 of last week, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. God destroyed it all. I mean, we have new bodies, sinless hearts and minds, but we're in our, I mean, we're still us, but we're in our glorified bodies that we're going to live in for all of eternity. So everything from here on out is forever. And any that say this is figurative or symbolic or anything that follows in that vein, anyone that seeks to take away 
what our Jesus is declaring to us, his bride, in these final chapters, they, I think they need to repent that Jesus might take them away. Last, last verse in Revelation, it says, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy... See, I think if you say this is just an allegory or a metaphor or or a myth or this is, it's just symbolism here. I mean, Jesus isn't going to destroy what he created. This is just an analogy. This is not literal. For any of that say that, it sure seems like to me that they are taking away. But I could be wrong. But Jesus is on record saying God shall take away that person's part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So I'm just saying, I don't know if, if you can have the wrong view and you lead millions of people astray, if, if that doesn't qualify for taking away. I, I don't know, to me it would, but you know, God knows. Check out the first word, or th- first verse, third word. John writes, now I saw. The tenses derived from the meaning of this Greek word saw comes from two families. One meaning to see with the eyes, but the other meaning to know. So as John looks at this view as he's watching right here, what he's saying is, is I saw something new. It's not a remake. It's not a do-over, but it was a fresh new heaven and earth. He's saying, look, what, what I saw is I knew what it was. I knew what I saw. Okay, John, Johnny boy, how about describing to us what you saw? Well, this is all he tells us here. A new heaven and a new earth. That's all John says. He uses seven words to describe the new heaven and new earth. Let's say, you know, you you born, you lived in a cave all your life, and now you come out into the open. How are you going to describe everything that you see and experience from that way forward in seven words? That's all John does. It's all he he gives us, seven words for the new heaven and the new earth. But I think he does so for good reason, because he also saw our new home at the same time. So as he's looking at this new heaven and this new earth emerge, he locks in on this one city in this new heaven and earth system that Jesus created, and he's so overwhelmed, he uses 1173 plus or minus words to describe just this one city. But for the new heaven and the new earth, seven words. And I'm being generously because really, he only uses four words to describe the new heaven and the new earth. And that's it. New heaven, new earth. Four words. That's it. Man, there's going to be some exploring to do when we get to heaven. Look at how verse 1 reads. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. No allegory, no symbolism here, team. John saw it, and he knew what he was looking at, and he clearly tells us here, if we have a first-grade reading level, why there was no longer uh, the old earth, because he tells us why there was a new heaven and a new earth. And it says there right in your Bible, what does it say? What happened to the old one? It passed away. I mean, how difficult is that? So what just happened here? Well, I'll tell you what, God happened. That's what happened. The history of time on this earth is over. It's come to a close. And the future history of the bride of Christ for all of eternity starts in chapter 21, ends in chapter 22. And, you know, we get a glimpse 
as to what eternity is going to look like. You could say that everything of God's original creation was utterly destroyed, both the earth and the heaven. Now, so we don't get confused, the Bible uses the word heaven to reference three different geographical locations. There's the earth, sky, and atmosphere that's kind of the one that we live in. That's the first heaven. It will be destroyed. There's outer space and there's planets and all of that. Well, that's also called heaven or the second heaven, and it will all be destroyed. So this nonsense of looking for other life on other planets, ridiculous, because it's all going to be, it's going to be destroyed. But of those uh, uh, that are referred to as heaven in the scriptures, but also, more importantly, there's also heaven where God dwells. But obviously, it's not going to be destroyed because it hasn't had anything bad to it. Nothing has ever polluted it. So, same word, three different locations. But everything that you and I know of in this heaven and this earth, God totally eradicates it. And please, I want to just like hammer this whole thing home. Second Peter chapter 3. Three places we're going to look at, and we're going to drive a nail, a stake through it, like JL drove a stake through the evil that entered her house. We're going to drive a stake through this. Because you need to understand, in this part of the world, people believe this isn't really going to happen. Oh, it's going to happen. Second Peter chapter 3. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So this is there's something that God, that, that God wants to remind us here, as Peter writes here, that you, church, may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. You know those ones we find in the Old Testament. And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the, the Lord and Savior. So those that were present, Peter and the other guys, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. And they're here, team. Jesus isn't coming back for a thousand years. There, there's not no literal seven-year trial on this earth. This heaven and this earth is not going to be destroyed. And, you know, they have all of this stuff here. They, it says that they'll come in the last days, and they'll be walking according to their own lust, and then they'll be mocking, saying, hey, where's the promise of Jesus coming? Yeah, it's never going to happen. You guys have been talking about that forever. For since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues as they were from the beginning. Nothing's changed. In other words, those that are proclaiming those things, well, they were there in John and Peter's day. They're going to be there in our day as well. And it's like, hey, look, no Jesus, man. You guys keep talking about this stuff. Well, verse 5 gives us insight as to why. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. Whose day did that happen in? Noah's day. When God spoke and allowed the flood to come forth... It happened without warning, even though God had spoken 120 years earlier that he was going to flood the earth, but he still waited 120 years. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, that same word that spoke in Noah's days, that's, that, that was long-suffering, but ultimately in the end, the flood did come, 
But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by that same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment. We saw that at the great right throne judgment last week. And perdition of ungodly men. In other words, God has his eye on the timer here. He knows exactly when this ball called earth is going to be destroyed. But beloved, that's you and me, that's his bride. Do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And if you use that math, it's only been six days since God created Adam and Eve and walked with them in the garden. Two days since Jesus ascended back into heaven, or 12.6 minutes since my son, our son, and Danny and Christina's brother has been in heaven. So he says, hey, don't forget this. God's math is different here. God's time is different. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I mean, if Jesus would have came in November of 83, I would have been left behind. I'm sure I would have been out there fighting against it. So I'm thankful for his long-suffering here. And maybe you are too. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it, it will be burned up. And that's what we read in Revelation 21, that the first heaven and the first earth is going to pass away. It's going to happen not because science has said, well, you know, possibly in a billion years the planet could explode, so we need to get out there and save it. That's ridiculous. It's going to happen because God said it would. Now, on a side note, we should be good caretakers of the planet. God gave it to us, but to the extreme they take it, and to the hypocrisy there, it's ridiculous. Verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, speaking of the heavens and the earth, what manners of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And all of us have to be able to answer that, team. Looking forward to and hastening the coming of the day of God. You know it's going to happen because Jesus declared it. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, the church, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's the one that John saw. I mean, that's where we are, right there in Revelation 21, when John saw with his own eyes a new heaven and a new earth. So are we supposed to gut this chapter out of our Bibles too because it doesn't fit our theological persuasion? And well, it's just symbolic. So do we just cut this out too? It says, because these things are going to happen, live this way. Well, if it's not really going to happen, then what's the point of living that way? Verse 14, therefore... Because this earth will live on, that we live on, will be destroyed by God. And we who believe in and trust in the living God will live on in the new heaven and the new earth for all of eternity. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. I mean, God doesn't desire anyone to perish, so get after it. You know, use his long-suffering to bring salvation to the lost, because these things are going to happen. Psalm chapter 102, middle of your Bible, you'll find it. Next spot, please turn there. Okay, because either we believe the Bible, or we're going to have to cut this out too. 
Psalms 102, verse 25. Right dead center of your Bible. That's what I learned going to church growing up. (laughs) Of old, you, O God, laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Ask your neighbor, did you see that neighbor? Good job, Chloe. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You, O God, will change them, and they will be changed. But you, O God, are the same, and your years will have no end. So are we supposed to just gut this out of the Bible, too, because of our theological persuasion? I don't think not. Spin ahead about 40 pages or so. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. And I know we looked at a couple of these last last week, but I, I just want us to remind ourselves, we, we need to like, this needs to be such a non-negotiable because it's so simple reading level here. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, the prophet writes as God speaks to him, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. So are we supposed to gut this out of our Bibles too because it doesn't fit our theological persuasion? I don't think so. So I went looking for the arguments for this view. This is what all those who say this is all symbolism here, this is what they say about Isaiah 65 verse 17. They say you can't take it, this passage, literally, period. Okay, why? They don't give a why. (laughs) <laughs> they, they, they say, you can't take this literally. Why? They don't use any Bible to back it up. They use just man's words. It's ridiculous. And Christians are being duped by them because, well, they're so smart, I guess. Look, you can't just say something about something in the Bible without Bible to back it up. That's ridiculous. In Isaiah's passage here, the Hebrew word for create is bara which is the same word that God used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created, or God bara. So what God did in the beginning by creating something out of nothing, he's going to do again as he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And it, you know, it means something here. You can't just eradicate it because it doesn't fit your theological persuasion. Some people say, no, he's going to refurbish. Really? Okay, what, what do they use for that? They use the exact same scriptures that we looked at. Of course, they left out the last one we're going to look at. But they, they use the same scriptures, but they assign a different meaning. They say it's going to be refurbished. Listen, just because they can't view God destroying this heaven and earth, they, can't, they just for some reason can't see that or don't want to believe that. But it's here. Can't, you can't just wipe something out out of the Bible because it doesn't fit your theological persuasion. One last verse to like drive the stake right through the heart of this whole bogus conversation like JL did last week the women's Bible study. Luke 21, verse, 20, verse 33. Luke 21, 33. It's, this is so simple, you probably already got it memorized. Luke 21, verse 33. The words of Jesus here. 
I mean, if, any, if anyone should know about what is literal and what is not, the Creator should. Amen? I mean, he, He's going to know. He's, Jesus gets the final word always. So here's what Jesus says in Luke 21, 33. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, comma, but my words will by no means pass away. There's two statements here. Jesus is saying, look, first of all, my words are never going to pass away. And then to prove you why, because heaven and earth will pass away. Pass away is future tense. So in Jesus' humanness, it was future to him. Just like as you and I read this, it's future to us. And it's in the indicative mood, meaning the words of Jesus here are a simple statement of fact. Greek dictionary for indicative mood states this, if an action really occurs or has occurred or will occur, it will be rendered in the indicative mood. This heaven and this earth is going to pass away, and Jesus puts the big punctuation mark at the end of this conversation to where if you don't believe the words of Jesus, you got some serious issues because this is what he said. So I don't know how you can say that symbolism. What, Jesus is talking in symbols here? No, he's talking very clearly. Back to Revelation ch chapter 21. Team, it's going to happen. All you're going to want to make do is make sure you're on the winning team. You know, don't, and look, but here's, here's here again. You may go, yeah, I'm okay, I got it, I got it. Listen, there's all kinds of people that, that call themselves believers that are really believers that don't, that are taught this is never going to happen. Engage them in conversation. Something like, wow, is it going to be awesome in this new heaven when God destroys the old one? And if they go, what? No, he's not. Well, at least you'll know where they stand. But they, they stand that way because they have been taught by man and not by God's word. You need to go to them. You need to free them up. You need to get them excited to be looking for not a makeover, but a brand new heaven and earth. We also read in verse 1 that John took notice of that there is no more sea. So if sailing, boating, skiing, surfing, and scuba diving is your thing, please don't worry. God will have something way more better for you than that. Those who do not believe that God is going to destroy this heaven and earth have a hard time with this whole passage here. Especially the no sea. What's that figurative too? You know, just, they're there. They just clean up. They get made better. They just get out their whiteout that they bought at Office Depot and just start whiting out all this, problem solved. But team, you can't do that. However, if you read 2 Timothy 3 and 4 in the last days, people are going to be doing that. They're going to be whiting all kinds of stuff out. But we can't. Verse 2, then I, John, as his draw drops a little, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, totally different from any earthly city that John had ever seen, coming down out of heaven from God. You know, we know cities are, or at least they're supposed to be, places where people gather and interact with one another. In this new city, there will be no garage door to hide behind. You know, you drive home, pull in and hit the garage door opener. Oh, don't even have to meet anybody. Not on this new city, no garage doors. There will be no sin, no temptation. We can't even imagine what this is like. And there's two things here. He not only saw it, and John uses the same word for saw that he used in verse 1. So as he looks at it, he knew exactly what he was looking at. And John is saying here, I saw and I knew it was the holy city. And it had been an incre uh, incredible sight to behold. And please notice here, team, 
we've been watching John led by a journey, led by an angel on the journey. You know, and the angel says, you know, this is this and this is that. Or the angel says, hey, John, do you know what this is? And John goes, oh, no, come on, you know, tell me. Well, there's no angel here telling John, hey, this is the new heaven, the new earth, and the holy city. Why? Because John knew the Old Testament. John knew the old one was going to pass away because the Old Testament prophets wrote about it. And so as he sees this whole thing taking place, he knew what was happening. He knew what his fellow apostles had written about the old one passing away and the new one coming. And he knew what Jesus had spoken to him multiple times. So when he sees this city, he's so blown away that he writes here, the city looked as it was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It was breathtaking. It was the most awesome sight any man will ever behold is that bride. And that's how John describes what he's looking at. And for good reason. Have you ever seen a bad-looking bride? No way. Man, they, they got their team of people. They got the bridesmaids, the moms, the flower people, the makeup people, the hair people. You know, they get all that, all, all that together. And yet my wife with none of that stuff was as stunning as could be on May 4th, 1985, as she walked out that door at the hitching post in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. <laughs> Shining from head to toe. And John's looking here at this incredible scene in these first two verses. And please notice, though, his eyes only focus on one thing. Look back at verse 1. What all did John see? He saw a new heaven and a new earth. Where's the description for that? There isn't any. Because this, whole, this holy city has grasped his attention and taken his breath away. And so he goes, I heard a voice from heaven saying, behold, while statement number one coming up, the tabernacle of God is with men and God will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That is amazing. Can you imagine dwelling in the very midst of God for all of eternity? It's mind-blowing. I mean, the only per person that gets close to that is Adam and Eve. They've been in the presence of God, but it was a short time, and they're in the presence of God in their innocence because they're perfect. But us? We're going to know God like they did before they fell, but we're going to know God in our redemptive state. They were perfect. We are sinners redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And we're going to know God, the one who has bought us and redeemed us and saved us. We're going to know him that way. It's going to be amazing. Please don't miss the obvious here. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's what all of eternity is going to be like. You know, just hanging out with God. Hey, where are you going? I'm just going to go hang out with God. God being around, fellowshipping with his creation. That's what God wants to do with us today, team. You know, don't miss out. If in the grand scheme of things, God is into fellowship with his creation for all of eternity, then church, we should be after that today and spending time with him because he wants that fellowship with us because he's gonna get it for all of eternity. Give him opportunities each day. You'll never be sorry for giving God opportunities to fellowship with, but you will be sorry on the times that you don't. Verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, and here's why. For the former things have passed away. 
Every tear that you've shed, according to Psalm 56, 8, God has them all stored up in a bottle. And one day soon, with the most delicate move, all of them are going to be wiped away for all of eternity from the immense comfort of God. Every funeral, every hard experience that you will encounter on this earth, in this life, in heaven, all of it will pass away. Every ache, pain, doctor appointment, doctor procedure we face today, you know, come Lord Jesus, all of it is going to be wiped away. There will be no Advil. It'll be out of business. Please notice that this new city is notable by what it lacks. Eventually, John will tell us what is present, but first we're told what's not going to be there. Now, if you've never used these before, verses 1 through 8 is an excellent place to preach the gospel. It's all here. Everything you need to share with an unsaved person. I mean, you could use the whole chapter if you want, but really all you need is the first eight verses here. You know, you could write your family a letter, the unsaved ones, and say, I just want to tell you a place I'm moving towards. And you could describe it here, and then they're going to call you up and say, I didn't know you were moving. Oh, yeah, I'm moving. Next thing you know, you tricked them into a conversation about heaven. Verse 5, then he, and this is a rare occasion here where we see God specifically speaking from his throne in this book. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, while statement number two coming up, I make present tense continually, I make all things new. You want to know what God's plan for eternity is? Well, here it is. You want to know what God has been thinking all along? This is it. He's going to make everything new. I think John is so overwhelmed here, he stopped writing. So God said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. See this phrase, all things new? Not some things. God's not going to withhold any good thing from us as kids. And everything is going to be made New. Now, I don't know if it's going to have that new car smell and everything like that, but it's always going to be new. It'll never break down. God's going to make everything new for us, his kids, and I can guarantee you there will not be any maintenance on anything in heaven. Amen, men? No more maintenance on nothing. Why would God tell John to write, for these words are true and faithful? The word true in the original language means one who cannot lie. It's the real and genuine deal. Or in this case, it ties the previous statements to God. So then why write them? Because God knew man would be skeptical and he wants to put his punctuation mark on his words and his promises to his kids. The word faithful here means to win over or to persuade. These words are worthy of belief, trust, and confidence. But wait, it gets even better. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. So Jesus has accomplished and, has, and completed his entire mission of creation and redemption. Creates, redeems, and he's created it all over again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Here's the promise for all to ter- who turn to Jesus and thirst after him. And I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes, and we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by turning to and abiding in his in Jesus as he calls us. You shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Nah, I'll pass. You just die and go to the ground anyway. What if you're wrong? I mean, you ever come across people like that? Nah, man. No, they're, they're crazy. The gospel of God is what God has done for mankind. It's right here. 
I mean, how hard is it to drink anyway when you're thirsty? No effort at all. And Jesus is saying, hey, come and whoever thirsts. But see, there's no effort to drinking. That's why the Babylonian system offers all kinds of various drinks that will lead a man or a woman away from Jesus. Because see, deep down inside, mankind is thirsty and empty. And Jesus offers living waters, but Babylon offers counterfeit waters. Please notice here in verse 7 what the outcome is for all of those who overcome. We'll inherit all things. Everything God has, we inherit. God as our Father and myself as His Son. Man, can you say epic? I mean, this is the heart of God for all of His creation. Not only did He send His only Son to die in our place that we can move into an awesome relationship with Him and testify of how much He loves us to others. On top of all of that, add in and inherit everything that God has, God will become our Father and we'll be His son and daughter. It's amazing, but... But who would want to miss out on that? Some will. But first word, verse 8. Verse 8 describes a person who does not want to inherit everything that God has. Verse 8 tells the destiny of all those who do not want God as their father. Verse 8 is those who refuse to be called as kids. This is their lifestyle they're living. They're not failed and repented. No, that's not. No, this is their lifestyle. They don't want anything to do with God. Some of these are the Lord, Lord ones who come knocking at the same time, at some time in their life, and Jesus will say to them, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? In their fall, it will be costly. Jesus says it will be like a house built on the beach, in the sand, and when the storm comes, it is literally all wiped out, and it is a great fall. Why? Because they just had some outward appearance, but they had nothing going for them on the inside. It's in verse 8. I mean, there's nothing good in verse 18. These are those who tripped over the blood of Jesus all their life to go the other way because they wanted to live life their way and not God's way. But the cowardly. Matthew Henry, the old guy from the late 1600s, early 1700s, says the cowardly are those that dare not pick up the cross of Christ. They choose self over Jesus. Unbelieving, the one without a faith in Jesus Christ. Abominable. This is not bumble from Rudy the Red Nose. The word abominable means to stink or detest. Their actions and activities kept them away from Jesus. Murderers both internally and externally. You know, you just want to kill someone. But I'm a Christian, I'm not going to do it. Look, look, you've already done it, man. You need to repent. You can't live that way. You got to repent. Sexually immoral, pornos is the Greek word, sexual intercourse. That's their, they're, they're living it. They're just living it. They have no desire to get out of it. They're living it. Sorcerers, Greek word pharmakias, one who uh, prepares or sells drugs or uses them. Now, that's me, but I, it's not my lifestyle anymore. Jesus saved me. These, they're still in it. This is their lifestyle. This is how they live. Idolaters, an, an image worshiper of stuff or a worshiper of money who buy, so they can buy the stuff, and all liars. Let's call them the make-believers in the church. They said Jesus was their Lord on the outside, but Jesus knew he was not their Lord 
on the inside. See, if lie meant told a lie, man, none of us would get in. That's not what it means here. A liar in verse 8 has two faces. He or she has their Christian face that they put on as they pull up wherever Christians are meeting. They open the glove box and they grab their Christian face and they put it on. And they go to the meeting. And when the meeting is over, they walk back to the car and take off their mask and they put it back into the glove box because Jesus is not the Lord of their life. They're a liar and Jesus knows it. We may not know it, but he knows it. And Jesus told the parable about the wheat and the tares, about the true wheat and the false ones, how they're going to grow together and at harvest time they're going to separate. Jesus knows. We may not know, but he knows. And Jesus has brought no heart change on these that he calls liars. Even though they may show up, they may even be busy doing something, but it's all a show. But not to God. He knows that they're just liars. And so all of these things listed here have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Matthew Henry says, all these in verse 8 could not burn at a stake for Jesus because that's what the religious church was doing back in his day, burning true believers at the stake. So all these in verse 8 instead will burn in the lake of fire. And they're going to burn in the lake of fire for their sin that kept them from turning to Jesus as their Lord. Because when you talk to somebody, oh, no, I don't want Jesus, it's because there's something going on in their life that they are not willing to part with. It's not just because, no, I'm not interested. No, you got to know there's sin there. And they're not willing to walk away from it. And so those who are not willing to walk away from it and turn to Jesus as their Lord, this is their, this is their final outcome. They were in love with the Babylonian system. And God says friendship with the world makes you enemies of God today. You know, I don't know how many are deceived like this in the church today, but I'm sure it's a lot. Because, when, like I said, that parable of the wheat and tares. So how many is that? I don't know, but I'm sure it's more than we would like to imagine. One foot in the church and one foot in the world. One, too much of the world to be content with Jesus and too much of Jesus to be content in the world makes you lukewarm. Revelation 3, if you need to figure out what happens there. It's like God is on record here saying, you, cannot, you, can, you can have your choice today, but your choice declares your destiny for all of eternity. And it's determined right here on this playing field, which you and I call earth. But you have to choose. No one gets it both ways. Though many on this earth down through the years probably thought they could. They, they used the math. They, you know, they probably didn't have a car. They stuck it in their saddlebag or in their camel bag or something. Hey, yeah, we're fooling people. No, they're not going to fool God. I mean, dare anyone gamble on eternity when the stakes are so high? It's going to happen. God desires you, but you must turn to and choose Jesus and then receive as we all await Jesus to take us home. But all this is going to happen. It's going to go down exactly as God said. It's not subject to what man's theological persuasion believes. It's subject to what God has written. And God wants fellowship with us today. And God wants fellowship with us for all of eternity. So church, don't rob him of that. And this morning, if you've never turned to Jesus, 
You've never surrendered your heart. Man, oh, you come to church. But you know you're the liar. You have the mask you put on, and once you walk away, you're a totally different person. Hey, then today's the day for you to turn to Jesus. Dump the mask and turn to him and allow him to be the Lord of your life. That's what Jesus wants to do in your life. Father, this morning, we are so thankful that you've preserved your word for us.